This is some of uh, this time of the year is my my favorite time of the season. I don't know about you; it doesn't last long enough. Fall, but uh, it's certainly one of my favorite uh, times because of the crisp mornings, the colors changing in the trees, and of course. And I really want to thank our song leader, special. Uh, for the songs that he's chosen this, uh, this morning and the ones that we've been singing because it does bring to mind and, and it sets and underscores the purpose of why we're here today, brethren. And it, it's so important to keep focused in the fact that Donald Trump is not the answer to our problems, nor is Hillary Clinton the answer to our problems, nor is it the United States of America answers to our problem. It's not. The answer to our problem is Jesus the Christ. This day, this day, Rosh Hashanah, now the Jews don't get it. This is all history to them. But with the New Testament overlays as the apostles originally also worship these days. And with their Hebrew background of that early New Testament church and their connection to the Old Testament saw perfectly how, how these holy days apply, apply to Jesus the Christ, the Savior of humankind, the guy, the being, our God, firstborn of the Father, who's going to come back here onto this planet, and this day, dedicated, set apart, sanctified. You're, you're all sanctified today. Did you get that? That's pretty interesting. You're, you're, you're holily sanctified, if I can use that term, holily. That's a new word out of my dictionary. <laughs> but you are actually sanctified because you're here. You're not out there shopping. You're not out there just driving around, you know, going on your job as, as most people are doing. The vast majority of 7 billion people on this planet are indeed Clueless, clueless on what's going on today. Now, does that make you better than them? No. It makes you more responsible for the reflection and the example that you set to those around you and how you interact in the network and lifestyle you present as your persona. So it's important. It's important that we always keep in mind that we are extensions of Jesus Christ's personality, extensions of his behavioral patterns, and extensions of his values and his standards. Today, you're enjoying one of his values. Today, you're participating, as I am, in one of his standards. And it's important, it's important we come to recognize that Jesus Christ is indeed the answer to humanity's issues. Because let's face it, this world with 7 billion humanoids on it, walking all over this place like ants on a hill, is humongously large in scope, size, and scale. Not only that, the differences of ethnicities, races, different religions, cultures... Different levels of existence, some third world, some second world, and some wealthy and rich like the United States, Canada, Australia, and much of Europe and so forth, the West as some have called it. But even some of that money now has bled over into the Middle East and so on. You've got places like Dubai and what have you where Western dollars have indeed uh, built it up. 
But the fact of it is, this world, due to the diversity of it and the multitude of different religions and ways, likes and dislikes, has been a litany and a legacy of failure after failure after failure of humankind attempting different governmental methods, operations, administrations, and for the last 6,000 years, since the dictatorship of Adam, <laughs> that's a joke, he was the only guy here, so it was a dick to get it? No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> the, the bottom line is since that time, there have been a variety of different types of governments that have been exercised onto mankind, and every one of them, get this, get this, every one of them have failed, including ours. We're already a failed republic. We're no longer a republic. We're a democracy. We're devolving, by the way. We're devolving. We're declining in our governmental operation. As a matter of fact, we are now seeing inklings of socialism coming in. More government ownership, more government influence, more government control. Next step, communism. I mean, I could list, and I did this just for today. I wanted to share some of these things with you. Do you know there are government methods and different types of governmental administrations I never even heard of? I never even heard of. Notice this. Now, we all know republics and socialism, communism, dictatorships, monarchs, kings and anarchism, capitalism, fascism, uh, democracy, and tyranny. Those are all pretty much, I mean, I think we got those pretty well down pat. Let me introduce to you some, some that I found just fascinating. Internet's a wonderful tool when you use it. <laughs> it's amazing what you can get introduced to. Anarcho-capitalism. Anarcho-capitalism. What in the world is anarcho-capitalism? It's a stateless society composed of sovereign individuals living within the constraints of corporatist markets. When you figure that out, let me know. <laughs> what in the world? Listen to this. Well, aristocracy, I think we, we have heard of that, but here's the definition of it. Government where political power is held by an inherited uh, hereditary right brother passed down to sister, passed down to brother, passed down to sister, so forth and so on. You have to be in the hereditary line in order to get the position. Demarchy. Demarchy. That was a new one for me. A political system run by randomly selecting decision makers chosen by lot. Wow, that's, that, that could be pretty dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Let's draw lots and see who picks the short stick. He's our leader. Or the long stick, he's our leader. Or she's our leader, you know. Uh, feudalism, uh, many of us have heard that before. A lot of that was uh, in the Dark Ages, of course, was quite uh, prominent. Heredity or hereditary class, militarized landowners exacting goods and services from the lower class uh, in exchange for protection. Uh, here's one that uh, I'm sure that... Um, Hillary Clinton is moving toward uh, matriarchy, matriarchy, that is the uh, rule by a woman which regards females to be entitled to exercise authority over the masses. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, oligarchy, uh, we've heard of that, primarily a lot of that's going on in Russia. Uh, government empowerment to a small elite segment of society distinguished by royal wealth intellectual, family, military, or religious hegemony. 
Theocracy, many of us are familiar with that, Islam. Islam is a theocracy. Don't think for a minute it is not a hybrid mixture combined and, and merged together of the government and religion. It's called a theocracy. Israel of old was a theocracy. Israel of old was a theocracy. And theocracy is religious government ruled by a particular form of religion that establishes the rule of law based on their theology. Many of you have heard of Sharia, Sharia law. That is Islamic religious law. And that's what Islam would like to uh, put upon and overlay on all constitutional law-abiding host nations. They go in, they embed, and then consequently attempt to dissuade those particular peoples that are hosting them to their Sharia. And hence you have a theocracy that's the outgrowth of that. This is a good one here. Theodemocracy. I never heard of that one. Theodemocracy. And that's government that is a fusion of traditional Republican Democratic rights under the U.S. Constitution. It has a theocratic element attached. The best example of this? The Mormons. Joseph uh, Smith. His attempt was a theo-democracy in that regard. And there's many more. Go on the Internet. There are too many to, I don't have the time to list all of the ones, brethren, that are listed there. It's amazing the variety of different types of governmental administrations and methodologies that, um, as I say, are too numerous to, to account for here, but is, again, something that has been tried by some group of uh, individual, and including tribalism, of course, we understand that, even going on today in some parts of uh, third world countries and in areas of Africa and so on, that are all still being conducted, but have all failed the people. Oh, yes, in some cases, they're, they're very good for the elitists. They're very good for the guy, you know, as, as the statement goes, it's great to be king. <laughs> you know, it's great to be king because everybody serves you, but it's not so good when you're down on the ladder is supporting the king. <laughs> it just doesn't uh, always work to the comfort of the masses of the people. So I, I say this to only say this to reemphasize this fact that the reality of all of these failures is for obvious reasons. And I think if we haven't got the point, it's certainly important that we do. And that is we've had, that is mankind has had, roughly about 6,000 years of at least history that we know and can re- reference back to, and of which uh, all indications are that we've been here since then for the last 6,000 years trying a variety of different types of governments, different types of rules, different types of administrations and methods to manage the masses, and as I've said, failed miserably in every one of them, every one of them. And as I would hope you understand, what God is doing is he's allowing us enough time to be illustrated or to be taught that, you know, without him, without righteous and fair rulership, which no man is capable of doing. You know, I I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but Donald Trump is not capable of it, nor is Hillary Clinton capable of it, nor was any of them capable of it. I don't care if it was a Jeb Bush or if it was a Bernie Sanders. It doesn't matter. None. Zero. Nobody 
Hitler, Mussolini, Alexander the Great, you know, all these guys, nobody, nobody, not even the Roman emperors, even though they thought they were gods, were righteous and or fair managers of those empires and kingdoms. And you can look down through the annals of history, brethren, the halls of historical record, and see the legacy, one empire, one kingdom, one country, one nation after another, and see ultimately the cycles they make and the declines and collapses they experience. And then the emergence again, and then the cycle repeats and the decline and collapse of another. And again, the patterns are set. The United States today, in all due respect to our wealth, all due respect to our sages among us who claim wisdom and understanding and knowledge, the fact of it is, morally, we are on the decline. You can be conservative fiduciarily. Oh, you can try to say, well, I'm running on a balanced budget. I'm running on, a, on a, you know, uh, the fact that we're not going to overspend. We're not going to generate more dollars to the debt, the national debt and all that. Oh, but we'll still kill babies. Oh, yes, but we'll still def uh, have problems in defining what bathroom we're going to use. Oh, yeah, but we'll still be able to have men marry men and women wear marrying women. And those are all off the rails. The nation is a stench in the nostrils of God. And sadly, the pastors and the ministers, I was reading scriptures to, uh, this morning, as a matter of fact, of which I was digressing off of this message, which I don't have time to go into that digression, but you should hear the words that God has for the modern-day pastors. It makes my knees shake uh, with regards to the fact of how they have failed the people by endorsing certain things that God is against and or are not speaking to those points to educate the people on the things that God expects, and consequently the people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. And so they think two men can marry. Matter of fact, they're, they're confused about marriage. They're confused, like I said, about going to the bathroom. They're confused about what's right and wrong, what defines even a lie. We can't even define an individual lying when they're lying. I mean, they're lying, and we're afraid to... Well, they just didn't tell the truth. What do you mean? That's a lie. If you taught your child that not telling the whole truth is not a lie, well, good luck with that. Apparently, that's some of our, how our politicians have been brought up because they're sure getting away with an awful lot right in front of our eyes, right in front of our eyes. The system's compromised. And once the United States, I talked about this at the campaign, once the United States in particular loses the confidence in the voting system, which we are almost now at the virgin precipice of doing so, and this election cycle could very well be the tipping point, could very well be. I don't know if it's going to be, but it could very well be because it has the potential because it's stinking already. It's stinking already. Once that happens, brethren, there's another 
there's another methodology I didn't mention. It's called anarchy. It's called anarchy. You're on your own. <laughs> Katie, bar the door. Hope you survive. So I don't really want to digress into that. I just want to say I'm thankful. I am so thankful that I understand there is a solution to this mess that we find ourselves in. Over here in Romans chapter 3, I want to point something out to all of us. Because mankind is inept. Mankind is not equipped. Mankind is, by nature, selfish in his orientation. And that's why you see in the nature of most politicians today, it's all about them. Frankly, it's very hard to believe you can't be somewhat narcissistic, even if you look like a good guy that there's got to be some narcissism in yourself in driving you to do what you're doing for the sake of the position that you're in. Very few individuals today in our day and age could be considered true statesmen where they are selflessly serving the people even at their own inconvenience, at their own expense. Here in Romans 3, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will touch on the high points. It's written, verse 10, there is none righteous, none, no, not one. There is none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one, says Paul. Their throat, it's an open sepulcher. Their words but there's no meaning, there's no substance, it's just words. Vote for me. Why? Well, because I'm going to put Coca-Cola in every, you know, drinking fountain, and you're going to have free tuition, and you're going to have free this and free that. And there's nothing free, brethren, about anything in this world. Somewhere, somebody is paying for it. Even me, when I owned my own business, even when I owned my own business, if I gave something away and you were the recipient of a free commodity or a free item I gave you, guess what? I paid for it. <laughs> Unless I stole it from my supplier. <laughs> but I paid for it. There was a cost. There was a cost. Regardless of the gift to you, there was a cost. There's nothing free. There's always a cost. There's always a cost in that respect. So he goes on here. Whose mouth is full, verse 14, uh, of cursing the bitterness? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace, verse 17, the way of peace, they know not. They know not. This system is going to play out. And in Matthew 24, we're told where we're headed. This is the end game. Whether people believe it or not doesn't change a thing. This is the end game. If we want to look down ahead and look out on the big picture and see the light at the end of the tunnel where humankind is moving toward, tumbling toward, where we're headed, where we're steering into, or what we're steering into. Here's where we're going, right here, Matthew 24, for the sake of time, I'm just going to cut to the chase and mention this in verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, talking about the last days. This is a Matthew 24. Jesus goes through a whole litany of signs of the last day. And he says in verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, great troubles, tremendous troubles, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Okay, so this is the coup d'etat. 
This is the, max, this is the maximus. This is a time that Jesus says we're going to hit peak trouble. This is a peak troubled time. Nothing like it ever before. As a matter of fact, he takes another step to further identify it. Verse 22, and except those days should be shortened. In other words, God's going to have to intervene. He's going to have to shorten them, intervene to shorten them. He says, there should no flesh be saved, but, look at this, for the elect's sake. Who's that? That's the church. That's the church, brethren. For the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Those days shall be shortened. For the sake of those that are called out during these times of trouble, and when that generation comes onto the scene, God is going to choose at a point, God the Father. Even Jesus, the Bible says, doesn't even know the time. Jesus, I've often characterized him sometimes, you know, uh, Father, can I go now? You know, he's sitting next to the right hand of the Father. Am I ready now? You know, he stands up, sit down, relax. You know, it's not time yet, you know, because only he, he's got the sovereign right to pull that trigger when he deems necessary and sees fit and decides and has determined it's over. Now, let's get going. Engage. It's going to get to the point where if God doesn't stop mankind, what we're told here in verse 22 is he's going to self-destruct. Now, let, let's go back to one of the prophets for a moment, Daniel chapter 12. I want to see if we can confirm this. Daniel, remember, he lived about 500 or so years before, actually 500 plus years before Jesus was incar- uh, incarnate, before he was physically born. Jesus existed prior to his physical birth, but I'm talking about prior to his impregnation in Mary, Daniel lived. Daniel lived about 550 or so years before Jesus came on the scene physically. And here in chapter 12 and verse 1, we read a similar thing talking about the latter days, and you can read chapter 11 of Daniel. That's one of the longest, uh, actually the longest prophecy in a single chapter in the whole Bible, uh, next to the whole book of Revelation as the longest prophecy in your Bible. And it goes right along the same theme here in contour and in uh, continuum. And in chapter uh, 12 of verse 1, the story thread continues here where it says, and at that time, in the time we're talking about, if you read chapter 11, you'll see we're in the latter days, the uh, end of the world, so to speak, as we know it today. That's the, t- the time frame here. He says, at that time, Michael, that's the archangel in the spirit world, is going to stand up, that great prince which stands for the children of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. Look at this, a time of trouble. such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth. So much for heaven. Those that are sleeping in the dirt. What your Bible teach you? When you die, you go to sleep. It's nothing different than sleep without a dream. It's just that you can't get up when you want to get up. You've got to wait for Jesus to call your name. The Bible talks about that you do not have an immortal soul. You go to sleep when you die, and you are reserved unto a resurrection. And in this particular case, here, the Bible corroborates that theology by stating, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some 
to shame and everlasting contempt. And we understand that the wages of sin is eternal life in hell, trying to avoid pitchforks and demons. No, 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 no. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, so said Paul. You die if you do not repent and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. So, brethren, it's important that with the long-range end game understood that mankind is on his way to self-destruct, that over here in Philippians, and I want to point this out, is a concept that would be very healthy for all of us to always keep in mind. Regardless of how intense election cycles may become, and this election cycle is probably one of the most intense election cycles that we here in the United States have experienced in my lifetime. And as I said, Sabbath, I'll say it again here, and I've said it already here, we must guard against allowing that tension to encroach into God's church. Because if we do, or don't, I should say, then what we're doing is forgetting about this. You are not of this society. You've got to get that point, brethren. If you're baptized, impregnated with God's Holy Spirit, you are not your own. You do not belong to this republic in the United States of America. You do not belong to this democracy here in the United States. You make your own choices on whether or not, of course, you want to participate in the voting cycles and so on. And I'm not trying to discourage you from doing that. If that's your choice and that's the way you feel, then so be it more power to you. By the same token, if you don't feel like you don't want to be a part of the system and get involved in the cycle, that too is your sovereign right and prerogative to do in this land of freedom and liberty. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is at the end of the day, when you realize your relationship, your intrinsic connection to this material system of the United States of America, if we were in Canada, I would say, Prime Minister Trudeau. The fact of it is, this is the counterpoint that you and I are all part of. Don't forget this. Notice, verse 19, chapter 3, book of Philippians. He says here, uh, I'm going to just break to uh, verse 20 because we're running out of time here already. For our conversation, and that Greek word means citizenship. My citizenship is not in Hinkley, Ohio. Your citizenship, wherever you live, is not there. Your true relationship, association, connection to this physical world still, regardless, is the spiritual priority of where you're connected. Your citizenship, you're being trained to be leaders in a different government. This government doesn't matter. I don't care if you're a registered Republican, a registered Democrat, independent, or a non-essential. Doesn't matter, because guess what? You're not. What you are is a citizen of the heavenly government that is coming to earth to displace, dismantle, and redeploy all these systems that I've been reading off to get rid of them, put them into garbage, flush them, and you better be ready. 
you better know this book if you think you're going to govern this world with Jesus Christ, you see. So this is the time to train. <laughs> That's what we're in. We're in training. We're in training. This day is all about recognizing your citizenship, where it really resides. And where it really resides, look at this. I'm, I'm not making it up. Verse 20, look at this. Your citizenship, that's what conversation means in the Greek, is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not looking to Donald Trump. Oh, Donnie. Hillary. I'm not looking to Hillary. I'm not looking to Jeb Bush. I'm not looking to the Senate or the House or any lawyer. I may need a lawyer occasionally. And I'll look to him then for whatever nuance of trouble I'm in. But that's a different, that's a different story. You, you see what I'm saying? What I'm saying here, brethren, the overriding connection that you've got, keep these things in perspective, is very important that we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's what this day is all about. The songs that we sang that Steve picked for us to sing, to put in our minds and to put in our spirit through, through harmony and, and song, the psalms and the things that we said about him being the one that we worship and rule. Wow, that's dynamite stuff. And we zing into that, hopefully, and settle in. We settle into that relationship where Paul finishes this chapter, verse 21, by stating this, who shall change your vile, which just means, that doesn't mean your flesh is vile. No, it just means you're a lower estate. You're mortal. You're mortal. You're going you're gonna to die. You're, you're, you were never intended to last forever. So you're of a lower state. You're, you're not spirit yet. So you're of a low, lower state. Who shall change your lower state, your lower body, that it may be fashioned like unto the glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So it's the spirit body, brethren, that we should have in our minds that we are aspiring to. Look at this, chapter 3, Paul talking to the church at Colossiae. I want to show you this. This is an interesting merge of information where he takes the spiritual and connects it to this idea that Christ is coming back. Notice, notice how he does this. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you then are risen with Christ, and that's a reflection of baptism, you come up rising out of the water. That's the imagery. You rise out of the water. If you're risen, if you say you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Well, then if I am, guess where I'm, uh, what my, where my fix is, where my priorities are. My priorities are my citizenship in heaven because I'm looking forward to my king coming back to reclaim me so that I can have, be put in the position that he's preparing for me to do what I can for him in the millennium, for starters, and then later on, God willing, out into eternity after the millennium. But here, he says in Colossians 3, verse 2, set your affections, and basically uh, what that uh, word is all about in this particular case is um, set your mind. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of earth. Oh, yeah, it's interesting to watch the debates. Yeah, it's interesting to watch the campaigns. It's kind of funny in some cases. It's kind of entertaining in other cases. If it weren't so sad, maybe I would even laugh. But I'm not laughing on this election cycle. 
I'm not laughing. Why? Because I know the end game. And I know certain steps along the way that are going to get more complex and are going to begin to pick up volume and steam. And as I said two weeks ago here, God has a message for the United States of America. I said it Sabbath at the campaign. He's got a telegram that's coming. And we're all going to understand what that telegram is in the next two, maybe three years, I'll give it, because the next administration will take about that long to where you and I will be able to clearly see the direction of this democracy and where God, God, God is allowing this country to go, not the president. He is essentially there by God's allowance, brethren. That's right, even President Obama. God has allowed that. God allowed George Bush. God allowed Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. And thank God he did. God rules in the kingdoms of men. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. Don't forget that. Chapter 4, book of Daniel, and 5. Even his son, Belshazzar, had to learn that lesson. God rules in the kingdoms of men. Psalms 22. He takes, sets up, and cuts down those he wants to be ruling when he wants them to be ruling. Why? He's got a script. He's steering it. He's got a script. And America is on track, sadly. The wrong track. <laughs> Unless we repent. It's conditional. If we could get everybody to repent, including the Muslims and all the immigrants and illegal and legals, we'd be in good shape and give our hearts to Jesus Christ and cry out to God for his protection, we'd be a wonderful nation like Israel did on and off until finally they just gave up on it and the Assyrians came in and invaded them and took them away. And later on, 120 years later, the Babylonians did to the Jews later on. So the fact of it is, brethren, we need to keep things in perspective because as pointed out here in Colossians chapter 3, which I lost my place, but here it is, in verse Three, I want to get back to this. For you are dead in your life, and your life, I'm sorry, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. That's what I was talking about. You see how that's worked in there? He's, he's appealing for you to set your sights on a higher sense of affection, to pursue, be risen with Christ. And so the whole purpose of that, your motivation for that, is so that when he appears, what's that talking about? That's talking about what this day represents. That's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when he appears, you, if you're alive, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I didn't make that up, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And as Nicodemus was told by Jesus himself in John chapter 3, you will be from flesh and blood to something called spirit. And Jesus characterized it as the wind, invisible to the eye, invisible to the eye, but nevertheless very effective. You'll see the effects of it. And you will be embodied. 
That body we were shown by Jesus Christ can materialize and dematerialize. It can walk through walls. Nothing in the physical realm can stop what you will be able to do once you are converted ultimately into this spirit being that Jesus explained to Nicodemus when he was incredulous, made incredulous, and said, how can these things be? What are you telling me, Jesus? And he was a, he was a well-trained Pharisee. He wasn't no, you know, dope, knucklehead. No, no, he was trained and very well educated. So here we're told by Paul, Christ who's our life shall appear, then shall also, you shall also appear with him in glory. What's that about? In glory. That's not about praise worship music. That's about you becoming spirit. That's what that's about. So this is all going to happen when the restitution of all things occurs. Because the restitution of all things is indeed coming. Here in Acts chapter 3, I want to bring this up before I go into the Old Testament. I've got a few minutes still left here. Chapter 3, and in verse 19, this is important because Peter is speaking. This is one of Peter's first sermons. And he's waxing eloquent to his audience about the fact of how they murdered Jesus Christ and how they didn't know who they murdered and frankly still don't know who they murdered as he's speaking here. And so he's laying into them, and he's really, you know, telling them like it is. And in verse 19, we come down here to the end of uh, his presentation, basically. He says, Repent you, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. What's that talking about? He's saying, Get your life right with God now, as soon as you can, because the time is coming when Jesus is coming back. What this day means. Jesus is indeed coming. Your Bible's filled with this. He's coming back. He's on a countdown from heaven. And furthermore, verse 20, he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached to you. This is Peter talking to his audience. Verse 21, whom the heavens must receive, which they have. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now, alive, firstborn of of, uh, many sons and daughters to come. He says, till the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Wow. This is a story. Like I told everybody just uh, on Sabbath, you, whether you like it or not, are part of a providential plan. And you're in play. You're in play. Like it or not, you're in play. And so it is what it is. And the answer to getting out of this alive (laughs) is to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and model your life after his standards, his values. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. This is one of the prophets that Peter was referencing. Obviously, he was referencing all the prophets in many cases, and you can make a case... For many of the prophets, I wanted to share a few scriptures through the Old Testament here just to illustrate to you what Peter certainly was referencing in general. Because keep in mind, the only Bible available for the New Testament church was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament, only the Old Testament. The prophets, the law and the writings were the Bible. That was the Bible, I should say. That was the Bible of the early New Testament church. These were the scriptures that those apostles always referenced because there was no New Testament. People that say the Old Testament has no relevance to Christians today do not know what they're talking about. It's nonsense. 
Don't listen to that person. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Verse tw- uh, 1, chapter 23, book of Jeremiah. Woe unto the pastors um, that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. You've scattered my flock, you've driven them away, and you've not visited them. Behold, I'm going to visit upon you the evil of your doings. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I've driven them. I will bring them again to their folds. They shall be fruitful and increase. That's the end game. The pastors in this day and age, the vast majority of them, though Jeremiah was talking in many cases to the priesthood of his time, back in that time when Babylon was invading Invading Judah, that's the time setting here of the prophets. And he was reprimanding those pastors and those uh, priests and rabbis and so on. Nevertheless, extends out in this overlay to the future to those of us today in the 21st century, needless to say, very cogent, that in fact they, we, those of us who do not speak the truth, those of us who mislead God's people and people of searching sincerely of God and say the law's been done away with, Jesus nailed it to the cross, once saved, always saved, you know, go ahead, obey Christmas or observe Christmas and Easter and all these other things and continue to divert uh, people from the truth of God, teaching them false premises to develop a relationship with God, those guys are going to be responsible, held accountable for dividing the flock. And he says here, God, I'm going to show you some scriptures here in a minute. God is saying in verse 3, I'm going to collect my true ones. I'm going to collect my true ones. At the time he intervenes, what does Jesus say? When he comes bursting through the clouds, he's going to collect his people from the four corners of the earth. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 are all in there where it says when he comes back, he calls your name. Those in the dirt, John chapter 5, who are in the grave will rise to meet the Lord in the air. Those that are are alive at his return in the twinkling of an eye, in the snap of a finger, you're going to be changed from flesh and blood to spirit. You're going to meet him in the air. This is not the rapture. No such thing. Not even in the Bible. And it goes up in the air. You meet with him. Where's he going? The Mount of Olives. He's not going back to heaven. Once he collects his soldiers, once he collects his government agents, you get my drift? Once he collects his Gideon's army, once he's got those who did take the time to train, who did take the time to study, who did take the time to learn the law, the first five books of the Torah, that's what we're going to be teaching. By the way, that is going to be the constitution of planet Earth in many respects, so keep that in mind. You need to learn the first five books of Moses. You need to study. You've got to study that stuff. Because if you don't know it, guess what? You may not qualify. There's no use for you if you don't know it. You've got to know these things. You've got to study, take time, meditate and pray, and of course fast on occasion. So he says here he's going to collect them at that time. I will set up shepherds over them. Who are they? You. I'm going to set up shepherds over them, true shepherds this time. He says, I'm going to set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them. They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, says the Lord. The Jews never had this happen to them. This is unfulfilled prophecy right here. This is an unfulfilled prophecy. This never happened. The Jews went into captivity at the behest of the Babylonians. They never experienced that. They came back 70 years later, rebuilt the temple, and Jesus came on the scene. But they never experienced this. 
They never experienced it. There are going to be future shepherds that are going to help God put them at ease. He says, verse 5, here it is, and he's going to put it in context now. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, I'm going to raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Did Jesus do that when he came to earth the first time, 2,000 years ago? Nope. What did he tell Pilate? If I was of this world, my people would fight. I'm not of this world. Why did Jesus say that? His citizenship was in heaven. He was not Roman. He was not of the Roman Republic. Jesus stood firm, took the consequences, and was crucified by the Romans at the behest of the Jews. Nevertheless, it was our sins that killed him for all intents and purposes. But with that being said, the fact of it is, in this particular case, that this never happened. This is coming in the future. He goes on, verse 6, In his days, Judah shall be saved. Judah has never been saved. What you've got over there in Palestine is not a good situation. And I would venture to say that if Benjamin Netanyahu had the question posed to him, do you feel saved? (laughs) Surrounded by all of those uh, terrorist groups and Palestinians and so forth, I would venture to say he would say, absolutely not. That's why we are all armed with an arsenal here, protecting ourselves. This has not happened yet, brethren. This is for the millennium. Notice, he says here, in his day, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely, both houses. And this is his name whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Jesus was never called that. Jesus was called a bastard. Jesus was called a rogue rabbi. Jesus was called a criminal. Jesus was crucified with thieves. But he's coming back, as this day represents, as a conquering king, Lord of lords. And he's not taking prisoners. When you read about what's going to happen and how he's going to execute the involvement that he is going to initiate when he intercedes into human affairs, it is going to truly be brutal. However, keep in mind the second resurrection. Death means nothing to God. All those people will have their chance. They aren't, they aren't in a bad off way in the sense, well, they, you know, how they're going to die and all that, but, but I don't want to be light about it. The fact of it is there is an answer to even them or for them. And they too, as the great last day in the Feast of Tabernacles represents, the rest of the dead will have their opportunity. God's fair. God is fair. Everybody, every Muslim, every Shintoist, every Buddhist, every Hindu, every atheist, every agnostic will have their opportunity to finally accept Jesus Christ and say yea or nay on whether or not they accept Torah, Jesus' standards, Jesus' values, and him as Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's important we do that now as pointed out here, he says, Therefore, verse 7, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that they shall no more say the Lord lives which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but 
the Lord lives which brought up and led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. Chapter 11, book of Isaiah. Here's another prophet, the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Isaiah, he spoke about 120 or so years before Jeremiah. He spoke to the ten tribes of Israel. Jeremiah spoke to the house of Judah. Before Jeremiah, so was Isaiah. You know these scriptures very well. Chapter 11, you'll probably hear them again at the Feast of Tabernacles where the millennium is described in verses 1 through about 9. And then... What I want to focus on now is verse 10. Onward. He lays down the millennium, and then he says this in verse 10. And in that day, what day? The day that he's describing when the lambs will be with uh, the lions and the, and the little kid will be playing on the hill of the asp and so forth. In that day, okay, that, that's the time setting here. This is what the prophet is saying. He's talking about the end game, the millennial, the millennial rule of Christ when he's on earth and so forth. He says, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, that's Jesus, which shall stand for an ensign. He'll be a sign. He'll be a billboard. He'll, he'll be the neon sign of the people. To, to it the Gentiles, all those non-Christian, all those non-Israelitish, all those non-Hebrew nations, will even seek. What are we talking about? We're talking about Islam. We're talking about Hindus. We're talking about Buddhists, Taoists, and so forth, and atheists, and so on. They're all going to look toward Israel because that's where Jesus is going to set up shop. He says here, And the Gentiles shall seek, and his rest shall be glorious. It shall come to pass. In that day, the Lord shall set his hand again a second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, gather together the dispersed of Judah, both Israel and Judah, both houses in the end times at the beginning of the millennium, meaning Judah and Israel have to exist at the end time in order for them to be collected. Therefore, it's easy to understand that there is a house of Israel in the end times. There is a house of Judah in the end times. And they will be collected upon Christ's return and brought over to Israel, where Jesus is landing on the Mount of Olives. That's what we're reading here. And basically, he tumbles down through here, and he says, The Lord, verse 15, shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egypt, uh, Egypt uh, the Egyptian sea, I'm sorry, and with his mighty wind shall he shake the hand, his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make the men go over dry shod. And the, um, there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Basically echoing the words of Jeremiah. We just read that in chapter 23. Jeremiah and Isaiah 120, 150 years apart are corroborating each other. This is fulfilled prophecy. This is the inspiration of God inspiring these two men that are separated by 15, by 15 decades, at least 12, at least a dozen decades in, in their lives. Isaiah was long gone when Jeremiah was alive and prophesying. And yet Jeremiah is prophesying about an exodus that will shrink the exodus of Israel leaving Egypt into insignificance. 
And so here Isaiah is saying the same thing uh, in this particular case. Go to uh, Amos real quickly here. Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. We read again a similar, a similar situation where in fact uh, again about the millennium where he tells us in this particular case in verse 8 he says behold the eyes of the Lord God are upon a sinful kingdom I will destroy it from off the face of the earth saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob says the Lord for lo I will command and I will lift the house of Israel among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth and so even during the days of Amos when Amos was prophesying prior to the ten tribes going into captivity prior to that Amos was saying you're going to go down you're going to be sifted through the nations you'll become a great nation again but then what will really happen is in the millennium behold verse 13 the days come says the Lord that the plowman shall overtake the reaper the treader of grapes him that sows seed and the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt and I will bring again there's that word again, the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall, look at this, when was the first time, by the way? When, was, when did God collect Israel the first time? Out of Egypt, right? That was the first exodus. That's the first time. There's a second exodus coming. And when it comes, the, uh, here it's, it says here, that they shall then build the waste cities, and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink wine. I like that. Thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord God. And in Obadiah, time's running out. I mean, I just wanted to hit this, though, to just introduce you to this. Again, talking about the millennium, verse 20, because it's only one chapter here, verse 20 in Obadiah, just a page over, it says, And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites and all these Gentile nations, uh, and Jerusalem, of course, which uh, are in all these cities, and the saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge Mount of Esau, representing the Gentiles, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Who are these saviors coming in? And the Hebrew word, by the way, that's used is these guys are judges. These guys are deliverers. These people are the ones that are going to heal. And there's going to be an awful lot of need for healing at the beginning of the millennium. This world is going to be a war zone. It's going to be a mess. And at the beginning of the millennium, you and I, if we should be so blessed to make it, are going to be awfully busy out in the field, collecting, healing, organizing, and putting together administrations, pockets of cities, pockets of communities to rebuild those for the physical human beings that survived the tribulations to seed the ongoing generations that will reproduce throughout the millennium. This is real, brethren. This vision is here. It's yours. It's yours to embrace. It's yours to grasp. Your future is not in heaven sitting on a cloud strumming a harp and eating angel food cake. No, not at all. It is going to be hard work. It's going to be administrative work. 
you have been called to be kings and priests. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. You've been called to be kings and priests. Let that resonate. Think about a king. What's a king do? What's a priest do? Think about that. You've been called for that purpose. And you're going to reign. What's it say there? Revelation 5, verse 10. You're going to reign in heaven? Your Bible doesn't say in heaven. It says on earth. That's what your Bible says. You're going to reign on earth. You can't minimize these scriptures. You can't just lollygag them around and, and say, oh, that's nice poetry. These, these are real directives, things that are exposing the truth of God for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear to see these things. I've got so many scriptures I wanted to share with you, um, but I do have time for one more, so let me go there. <laughs> Micah 4, uh, Micah 4, real quickly here, just to close this up, to illustrate to you the end game in the millennium. Chapter 4, verse 1, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, that mountains being symbolic of nations. It shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations, there you are, the Bible interpreting itself, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the nation of the Lord, and to the house of the of the God of Jacob. It's not the God of, uh, you know, Allah. It's not uh, Vishnu. It's the God of, the, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the, the God we're talking about here. He's identified. And he will teach us of his ways. He, we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth. The law, you get that? Don't read over that. How's the law going to go out forth? Is Jesus going to do it all by himself? What are you being resurrected for? The law is going to go out from Zion via who? Via the agents, the government agents, those that are going to be helping to rule and reign on earth, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. He goes on here and he says, and shall judge among many people Rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat, look at this, their war machines, their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. That's why you have that statue in front of the UN. That's their objective. Peace on earth through mankind, right? I don't think so. We've proved for 6,000 years. Again, I'm not going to repeat myself, but the legacy is there very clear uh, for all of us to see and recognize. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn the way, uh, learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine, under his fig. You're going to have private property. You're going to be able to own your own property. You're going to have your own vine, your own fig tree, your own land. You're going to be able to sit under your own area. You want to own land in the millennium, under your own fig tree. None shall make you afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts, he has spoken that. Brethren, all I can say is God's speed that day. And though we've got a storm we've got to go through before we get to this, all I'm saying today, if you don't remember anything, remember this. Your citizenship is not of this earth. Your attachment, your priorities are on that kingdom of God of which this day represents in figure and in facsimile. Don't forget that. Continue to live for Jesus Christ so that you can qualify to be part of his administration in that 
returning kingdom of God.